everybody, check it out. Anchor by Spotify is the easiest way to start a podcast. It has all the tools in one place that you need right from your phone or computer to edit and publish your podcast. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listing platforms such as Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started now. I'm using it right along with you. Cults, mind control, sexuality, and society. These are the topics for the Frankie Files. I also have periodic interviews of experts and survivors. Facing my own story by writing my memoir was the beginning of finding my voice. Well, I found it. I'll explore multiple writers and articles on these topics new each Tuesday. Listen in. Oh, and I promise not to waste your time. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 35 of The Frankie Files. I'm your host and producer, Frankie Tees. Today, my guest is Sarah Tazneen. Sarah survived a forced child bride marriage arranged by her father in a Sufi sect in the United States. Find her blog in our show notes for this 35th episode of Frankie Files podcast. Her blog is tazneemsfadvocacy.home.blog. And Tazneem is T-A-S-N-E-E-M-S-F, that's Sarah, father, advocacy.home.blog. The organizations she works with are Resiliency Foundation, Global Hope 365, Tahari Justice Center, and Unchained at Last. It's such an honor for me to introduce this brave soul to you. I'm pleased to bring her interview to this podcast. I give you Sarah Tazneem. The Frankie Files. Trigger warning. Some people may find topics discussed in this episode difficult. Please proceed with caution. The Frankie Files podcast is researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Frankie Tees. Sarah Tazneem is an advocate publicly to end the practice of forced child marriage in the United States. She's a volunteer mentor with young women who need support before, during, or after experiencing forced child marriage. She states that at 15, her father forced her Quote, to marry a man, complete stranger, and almost twice my age. She says, it took me seven years to leave this abusive marriage behind. I'm fighting to change laws that allow child marriage in the United States, along with other survivors who know all too well about the human rights abuse that is forced child marriage. Sara, thank you so much for being my guest today. This is an honor. It's an interesting way we connected because you heard my first ever interview of my child trafficking story into a cult. And oh, that's that was why your we're first talking. interview. Okay. Can you believe it? Wow. That was amazing. Yeah. What was it like to hear that interview? Um, I think 
just the the openness from you about your experience, but also just your ability to be able to describe what happened to you in a way that myself as a survivor, I could really identify with and also identify Mm -hmm. some of similar abuse tactics that had happened to me as well. You also heard some of your story because of the trafficking element in my testimony, right? Yeah, that's definitely what I connected with, but also like the separation from your mother. Um, that yes. definitely happened to me at a really young age. Mm-hmm. And the the group that I was a part of, the way that they, um, well, first my dad, the way that he just had this narrative of my mom that was that was false, um, that basically that she didn't love me and that's why she left. Um, and as a child, that's really, my mom left when I was five. So it was, that narrative went on until, until today, actually. Yeah. They, no, they still blame my mom for everything bad that happened to my father. They blame her for leaving him. And, you know, it's just, it's always, it always goes back to the woman in the relationship. Now and, you're speaking of a, a religious group. That is of what denomination? So it's a Sufi group. Was here in the United States always? No, they actually weren't always in the United States. They're inter. It's an international group. Their U.S. group started in um, the late '80s, early '90s, and that's kind Mm. of when my dad got involved, and he got involved early on with the with the U.S. group here and um, in Mm -hmm. California and um, was close to the leadership. So I think that's also why we as children were exposed to kind of the inner circle, if you will, of the group. Is that another sister or brother? I am one of many children. It happened to quite a few of us. Um, Mm. Yeah. Okay. So this is preteen years. Yeah. That you lost your mom. And then you talk about, even on your website, uh, part of your story is about indoctrination and grooming. Yeah. What did you believe your role was in life? Um, that's really hard to say because it's like you don't really get a sense of self, I think, um, when you're constantly being told what to do and okay. what you're doing is wrong. Um, so it was kind of like my sense of self was really damaged. I just felt like I was a bad child that no matter what I did was wrong. Like I had to just obey and stop questioning. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, not ask so many questions. And also, you know, as a girl, gender roles were really, um, really defined from a young age. My brothers could run, um, wear shorts, swim, The Mm -hmm. girls could not, like, I couldn't wear shorts. Um, I wanted to go to ballet. Like I wanted to run and track and I Mm -hmm. couldn't do that because like I would have to wear shorts or I would have to wear a tutu and that was too revealing. So this idea that you have sexuality at a really young age, I think was part of the grooming that you are a desirable object, even as a child. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that really messes with your head. Mm -hmm. I like to call it auctioning off virginity because like, seems like religion 
literally is like, okay, your value is your virginity. I was told the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that's it. (laughs) Or if you're pretty, you're constantly being told how pretty you are. You have to hide your prettiness or that you're, there's something wrong with you because Mm -hmm. of like, I mean, you're just always made to feel like there's something wrong with you. And that is part of the grooming because it's like, if you think there's always something wrong, then when you start to do something right, or when you, when you're told that you're doing something right, then you're like, oh my God, this is like the best feeling in the world. Like a reward system for your brain, right? Especially as a child. Yeah. So the constant chastisement leaves you longing for approval. Exactly. Especially approval of, of the people who like, are the are the worst abusers, right? The idea that your value is basically your physical body and your look. And there's right. nothing more to it. Right. And a lot of these religions, as I'm doing more studies for the podcast and whatnot, you know, I do find that narrative, the man, the seer, the prophet goes into the cave, brings back the teachings. The women need to be in the back of the church. And the men will... Even in Rastafarianism, they have reasoning sessions. Women are not allowed in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a lot of excluded places for us. Mm-hmm. And we felt that okay. we couldn't be a part of like daily activities. And to me, that was really suffocating. I wanted, mm-hmm. I had all these things I wanted to do and I couldn't do them because I was a girl. I, I actually wow. hated being a girl. I wanted to be a boy. Like I would go to sleep praying to be a boy just because mm-hmm. they could do all the things and I couldn't. And the boys were being abused as well. So it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like freedom being a boy mm-hmm. is like, there were definitely um, different responsibilities associated with being a boy. Uh, they had to be the caretakers. They, um, you know, always had to be strong and all of us were expected to pray all the time, but you know, being separated from the men constantly, being told that you couldn't even look a man in the eye, that you had to, like, in order to be safe, you either had to have a brother or a dad or somebody that was directly related, dad, brother, husband, or somebody that was directly related to you to protect Mm -hmm. you at all times made you feel like you were kind of not like not capable of doing it yourself that always bothered me because I just felt like I wanted to I wanted to be able to defend myself you know super restrictive so it it managed what you could uh wear yeah where you could go yeah yeah what you can eat I'm sure there were definitely dietary restrictions um it wasn't just the group it was also my dad who was extremely abusive. Um, So it was almost like the teachings somehow leaned into his abusive ideas and helped him justify those abuses. Like children were kind of viewed as the embodiment of the ego. The ego in the group was like something that had to constantly be fought against. Uh, So your ego could be anything, like you were hungry you wanted or needed something. And as a child, it's just like, well, when you want or need something, it's usually because you're growing and you need it. It's not because your ego is out of control. It's because you actually (laughs) need it as part of your growth. So I think there was a lot of deprivation, not just of food, but like attention, 
Now, did you have homeschooling type situation? I didn't, but a lot of other kids in the group did. Um, and okay. some of them were actually deprived of their education. How my education was affected was that we moved around a lot. And every time we moved, I would be in a different school. You were bad if you got bad grades, right? But you were also like not acknowledged if you got good grades. It was never something that was acknowledged. You're so smart or you can do this or you can do that. I remember once I loved writing as a child and I liked drawing and writing and being creative. And I won this writing competition in the third grade. And I just remember like almost being ashamed of it because my family was going to be there and I never wanted the attention to be on me because it was, it made me a target. I definitely felt like trouble when I got home and I, it was never like directly related to that, but it was always just like, they found a way to, mm -hmm. to punish me. And I would say that was more of a family dynamic versus the cult, but that the cult lent ideology and really kind of like abusive practices it helped cloak the abuse. So we're setting the environment for listeners that your family dynamic was already being affected by the church, kind of separated the family marriage. Then you've got a somewhat sadistic father who's using yeah. the teachings as an excuse to abuse you children. Right. Severe punishment, etc. Yeah, it was very severe. It was isolation. It was physical abuse. Um, mm. We were even deprived of food. At one point, my brothers and I were targeted. I was specifically targeted because my mom, as I spoke about earlier, she left my dad when I was five. My mom grew up religiously, but she was also forced into a marriage at the age of 19 to my father. She was born in Guyana in South America. And she was traveling on a scholarship and my grandmother saw her and basically arranged the marriage with her and my father. And her father told her, you have to accept this marriage. Otherwise I'll disown you. For her, that was really traumatic. And so she accepted it, came to Fort Collins, Colorado, where she had never been in the U.S., never actually seen a white person in her entire life and was in complete cultural shock. She ended up leaving my dad because... She started going back to school. My dad was a different person, I think, when they were married. But when he joined the group, part of it was that she couldn't accept that he joined that group. And then also she was on her own like self-exploration. And so I was constantly told that my mom had left us because she didn't love us. It's more of that he joined a Sufi extremist group and right. that it affected the family's marriage. Yeah. And they weren't. And they his weren't, personality. They didn't label themselves as extremists. Doing dhikr, which is their version of meditation, they would attract members in by this idea that they would be um, connected to God through spirituality and love. But on the inside of it, where we were, it was a much different view of it. My mom had left, then she was demonized. And the leader of the group actually called her a shaitana, which just means a female devil. And because I was her offspring, then I guess the devilness kind of like, you know, went into me. I don't know, but I just mm -hmm. always felt really compared to my mother and I never felt like a full person. I was just, I felt like part of it yeah. was personal for my dad that he, when he looked at me, he probably saw my mother. Part of it was that, you know, she had left the religion, left him 
and just moved on and good for her. Like if she hadn't done that, I probably yeah. would have seen that freedom happen. She <laughs> definitely, you know, had had enough of his, whatever he was doing, who knows, right? To her. The idea that she was trafficked through an arranged marriage to begin the life here, it's got to be something that was so stressful for her. Right. And I don't know what their, what her and my dad's relationship was, but I think that they actually were loving. She just didn't want to be part of the religion anymore. And and when she left him, he really changed. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if he was always that person and that just like brought it out. I have no idea. Like, I just know that there was a significant change in him after my mom left. And when he became a part of the group, it just, it felt like he was a different person. So now this progresses for you in severity to the first point where he tries to marry you off to someone at age 12. Do you know this arranged marriage is coming? Do you know this is part of the policy? Oh, no. How did that happen? Yeah, no, I didn't even know. Actually, I put the pieces together much later on in my life when I started going to therapy. My childhood was like kind of a blank. Like I blocked certain things out. So as I was going through therapy, things started coming up for me. And one of the things that I remember was when I was 12 years old, I was actually living with my grandparents in Fort Collins and they were, they were good people. They didn't abuse me and they let me have a childhood while I was living with them. When I turned 12, I think they felt that I was being rebellious in whatever way that they thought I was being rebellious. They felt the need to control my sexuality, which is the theme of this story generally. It's very effective. Religion goes for that right away. Like, here's what you do with your sex organs. If you hadn't told me, I wouldn't have known what <laughs> to do with these, with these things. It's like a checklist for these cults. The Frankie There was a center in London, and my dad... Uh, requested that I go on a trip with him. I hadn't seen him at that point for like two years. I was always scared to death of my dad, but I was living with my grandparents and him. And I was kind of shocked that I was going on a trip, but I was also like excited to just leave and and go okay. to London. Um, and when I got there, it was just a very strange trip. Like my dad was being nice to me, which was weird. Okay. It was it was very odd, but like, okay, this is different. Um, I'm just going to go with it and enjoy it. He would like take me around the center there. This center was kind of like a convent, if you will. It's actually a former convent. People would go there to meditate and do seclusion is what they called it. And he asked one of the guys there, oh, do you think that she's ready? And he was like, oh, yeah, she's definitely ready. Kind of like... I don't know. Like, I didn't even know what they were talking about at the time, right? I was introduced to this guy. I was walking with my dad. I remember walking up these steps and he was like introducing me to this man who was obviously a man. I was 12 and he just told me to talk to him. And I was like, I don't, first of all, I was always, when I was with my dad, I was never supposed to even look at a man in their face. So why am I talking to this man? Right. It was, that's why it stuck in my mind. And I remember the guy talking to me and he was like, well, she doesn't speak my language. And um, oh, he wanted to see what dialect you speak. Yeah, there were people from all over the world in this group. There were people from Malaysia, Africa, India, Pakistan, England, Ireland, like literally all over the world. Um, So it's a huge international group, actually. Uh, There's an international group and then there's 
the group here in the United States. This was in their London center. Maybe it was his idea of let me gain interest around her. Like, let me, you know, they were told when folks join this group, of course, they targeted people with money. Of course, they targeted young people who maybe were, you know, in college. Their parents had a lot of money. And then they would tell the men specifically that half of their religion was marriage and they had to get married. It was half of their religion, right? So if they wanted to be a good uh, student, they had to get married and they had to marry, you know, why marry somebody who's been used? You should marry somebody who's, who is a virgin. And we were referred to as like, as soon as you were 13, 12, 13, you were on the market. Like 18, you were considered old, actually. The older women who actually joined in the group would complain about this. Like, we can't get husbands because all these young girls are taking all the husbands. It was literally (laughs) a complaint. I'm not sure if it was part of the Sufi doctrine. I think it was a part of the group, this cult. That was a part of their teachings. The Sufis is a much broader term. But this group, I would say, like, took those teachings and were really specific about them and that's what Mm -hmm. kind of made them a cult i was introduced to this guy i was told to talk to him and i think he turned my dad down thank the universe (laughs) i didn't know that i dodged a bullet i went back to my grandparents house and i was sent to live with my mom because they um i feel like they threw up their hands with me they're like oh she's just not i i don't know i'm not exactly sure what happened but they let me go live with my mom which was the first time i had lived with her since Amazing. I had been separated with her since I was five years old. And, I, you know, all this time, like, I would see her occasionally, maybe once a year at most. Um, there would be some years where I didn't see her at all, and there was a lot of trauma around that. When I was reunited with her, I was like, they thought they were punishing me. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you for reuniting with my mom. I missed her. You know, she was my mother. Mm-hmm. I had not lived with her. And... Living with your mother is a much different experience than just seeing her occasionally or like seeing her for a quick visit. Because I just remember those visits were sometimes more traumatic for me because the fact that she would leave, that that I would be separated from her after the visit was what stayed in my mind the most. You grow apart from your mother and Mm -hmm. it's, it's a successful means of separating you and it's just so tragic. Yeah. When you try to reconnect, it's like, where's the space for this? What do I do? Right. They tried to say that she would have been a horrible, horrible mother. I never thought she was a horrible mother. I thought that she was just my mother. They had this idea of what mothers were supposed to be. And if you didn't fit that exact image, then you were a bad mother. And it's like, who are you to say who a mother is? She wasn't perfect by any means. I mean, she definitely had issues. She, you know, became an alcoholic and and she had other issues going on. But that doesn't mean that she didn't love me, Mm -hmm. that she couldn't take care of me, um, me and my brothers. And she was a good mom. Looking back at it now, I wish I had the voice to say that to them then, but I didn't. So I lived with my mom for two years. She was very free. She was a free spirit. When she left the religion, she really kind of she went to atheism and the Mormons, if they would knock on our door, she would try to convince them that there was no God. And I was like, mom, just leave that. I love about, it. Like how there's no God. It was a really bipolar experience. It was like, 
all of a sudden I went from this very sheltered existence to one where, you know, uh, I had never been exposed to somebody drinking. A lot of what I had experienced with my mom were things that I had never experienced in my life. Wasn't super prepared for that. But that being said, I did thrive. And, um, you know, I also got into trouble. I mean, I was an angry teenager. I did things that normal teenagers did. Then it was later used against me to actually force me into a much longer marriage when I was 15. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Like I said, you know, I was living with my mom in Colorado. My dad lived in California. My mom was in Colorado. So for me, it was normal to have a very separated all over the place family. Um, You know, I was, this was my freshman year of high school and I had gone through a lot that year. I kind of decided towards the latter half of my school year that I really wanted to focus and I wanted to do well in school. I didn't want to continue to get in trouble. And I, I joined the JROTC and I wanted to go to the Air Force because I was like, this is how I'm going to get my education because nobody else was going to pay for it. That's for sure. I wanted to be a lawyer. um, And that was really like my dream. I would read John Grisham books and, you know, I was a 15 year old. I had, you Mm -hmm. know, these visions of what possibly my future was going to be. So that's kind of, that's who I was, but I was also, you know, I started seeing boy, my age, well, he was close to my age, maybe like six months older than me. My mom found out about it and it was like, at first I was in trouble and then she was like, well, we'll just put you on birth control and you can continue to see him. Like he can come over. She would get really mad and then she would not be mad anymore. Um, And then she told my dad, I think my mom really didn't understand how abusive my dad was. We didn't really disclose that to her. I was too scared. I was too scared of losing her. I was never in an environment where I felt like I could talk to her about that, I guess. So she told my dad and then my dad was like, well, can you send the kids out to see me this summer? She agreed. And actually, I think he had full custody of us, actually. Um, I think she had to comply. I already knew I was going to be in trouble because, you know, I was always in trouble. But of course, the boyfriend, oh, my God. So as soon, basically, just as soon as I got off the plane, he sat me down and was like, you cannot have sex outside of marriage and this will damn, not just you to hell, but it will damn me to hell and like literally the whole family. And so for me, hell was a real, a real life place because it Mm -hmm. was described Mm -hmm. to me in great detail. Literally, they described the seven levels of hell to me. As a small child, children have imaginations. So you're describing the levels of hell and I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually going to go to this horrible, horrible place. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but I'm going to send my dad there and everybody else. And it was just, it was scary. And I was really scared. I was actually like, even though I had a boyfriend, I was so scared to death of having sex with him that we never did. And he actually, when I was living in Colorado, um, he really respected me. Like he respected my body, but I was scared. Whatever it was that he was talking about, I just wanted the conversation to be over with. I didn't I always tried to keep our interactions very short, do whatever I had to, to just like make him go away. I know that that was one of those pivotal moments in your life. You knew something was about to happen. You knew something was too serious from your dad. You nodded. Right. And then, um, like he just let me go. Um, so I, you know, that summer he had been organizing this conference for the group. 
in Los Angeles and it was a big deal. You know, it was the first ever of their conference and they had, you know, celebrities coming and it was a big deal that the leader from the international group was going to be there. And that was a huge honor for, for them. So he was busy planning this thing and we all traveled to Los Angeles. And I remember being excited about going to LA with my family. You know, we were going to get to do all these fun things. And so that was really exciting. I mean, it was like a happy time and I didn't really think about anything. I just was a kid kind of, I was just enjoying the summer. You know, we got there and I think it was like the second day of the conference, second or third day. Um, it was a week long thing. And as kids were kind of running around the hotel, my dad grabbed me and he was just like, Hey, I want you to come meet somebody. This was at the Omni hotel in Los Angeles. There was a man sitting at a coffee shop and he told me to go and talk to him. So I just walked over and I had like, he asked me what I wanted to drink and I was like, just, I'll have an orange juice. I just remember like not really looking at him. I was sitting across from him and then he was like, Oh, I don't really want to wait for a long engagement. Um, I go back to this moment a lot, like probably daily, if not more than more, more than daily. Um, why didn't I just run, you know? That entrapment feeling of that being locked in to this. And every time you have said during our interview here, just talk to him. That's what we were told as strippers. Right. We would get paid to sit in front of guys and talk to them because they're just like running their imagination on us while right. they're doing. He right. was interviewing you as why. Right. Yeah. It's um, amazingly cold. And I'm sure there was more emotions there, but like I really did block out a lot of the emotion and still dealing with that aspect of it. I just remember thinking, I don't really think I had anything in my mind about it. It was weird. Um, and I didn't know mm -hmm. what was going to happen. And then the next thing you know, my dad is like, well, he was picked for you. You're getting married tonight. I can't remember exactly who told me that. I think it was him. There were a lot of people there. His family was there. Um, my immediate family was there. So like everything kind of just sped up in fast motion. And I was given a dress, a green velvet dress to wear. I was, somebody slapped makeup on me. <laughs> I remember there were so many people telling me things, what to do. Like, oh, one of my aunts told me like, oh, make sure you use a condom. And I'm like, hey, I don't, like, I don't even have one, whatever. I still didn't connect the dots, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it wasn't until... I was on my way up in this elevator, this glass elevator. I'll never forget about it. Um, and I asked one of the adults, where am I going to sleep tonight? And, you know, they just looked down at the ground. And, uh, like, I just felt this knot in my stomach. And, like, I wanted to run, but I also felt like I couldn't. Um, they told me specifically I could not call my mom. She would just cause problems. You know, she's crazy. She would have been out there on a helicopter if she could have. Everybody was there for this conference, right? Um, it was yeah. an, an honor for the great leader for us to get married by him. And I filed into a room that was packed. It was basically the, the leader's room. He was in a presidential suite and went to the front where, like, you barely talk to this guy, right? I mean, you hear about him all the time, like, daily. They're talking about the leader, the leader of leader. And all of a sudden, you're in front of him and... 
I got married in what's called a nikah. It's a spiritual ceremony. And um, the, the part that messes with me a lot that that was used a lot by my abusers is that you have to answer three times yes to get married. They ask you three times, do you accept this marriage? Do you accept this marriage? And all three times I said yes. It's in my head that I'm like, I said yes three times. That's the part that really messes with your head because you said yes three okay. times. It's like I was a kid and part of that process where you're like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they really mess with your brain because they make you think that you're agreeing with it, but you're really just a right. kid. I was mm -hmm. still a virgin. I had me definitely messed around with my boyfriend, but we did not mm -hmm. have sex. This part of it was like, this was all the, the pomp and the celebration of it made mm -hmm. you forget everything about what was going to happen. And I think that's also really disturbing, uh, this yeah. celebration that's happening around you. And you're not really partaking in it, right? <laughs> this is supposed to be a celebration for you, but I wasn't really a part of it. Were you feeling that cognitive dissonance, like you were out of your body looking down, feeling? I definitely felt that. Um, a lot of my childhood, but definitely in this experience, that part of my brain kind of turned off. I yeah. don't think it turned back on until much later. So what did you walk into? Was this a nice person? He was nice at first. Um, there was just so many things. He was a grown man. Um, and it was my first, like very first sexual experience. So like, mm -hmm. it just, it's a lot. Um, and was he controlling? I don't know if he had to be like, I was a kid, right? I did what I was told. And I also like tried to find my own happiness within that situation, even though it was a difficult situation. I didn't realize it at the time. Like I just was going along with it. And so I was taken out of the country. I can't really disclose where I went, but I was out of the country in okay. a place uh, where they didn't speak my language. I was, they were speaking French. My mom didn't know where I was. Uh, I was actually coached to call her while my abuser stood above me. And I had to lie to my mom and told her that I was supposed to stay with my dad. I told her, like, I literally, they told me what to say that I wanted to stay with my dad, which was so far from the truth. I would never want to stay with him ever, um, that I was going to live with him. So she thought I was going to be staying with him. And it really broke her heart. They took me out of the country. They had done this before, right? So they kind of knew. Um, they had doctors and lawyers in this group. They had advice from people. So they knew how to hide the abuse. I was taken out of the country. Um, I was like immediately, I immediately got pregnant, almost like, I would say probably day one. I didn't even know I was pregnant until like two months later. I was getting sick. I was in my mother-in-law's car and she was like, I think you're pregnant. And um it, the thought had never occurred to me. I was like, I didn't know that could happen. <laughs> like, what do you mean? <laughs> the lack of education is the reason they can get away with everything they did. All my reproductive rights yeah. were taken from me that night. Um, I, you know, despite the fact that, you know, I was in the U.S. when I was like the spiritual marriage happened, I had no way to access uh, birth control. I had no way to access any type of medical um 
you know, care or anything like that. Um, I was in another country. Then I was taken out of the country and then no more access to anything, including my own body. Like I had no autonomy over my own body. I was told I had to basically give up my body whenever my husband wanted it, um, anywhere we were. And um, to Mm. say no was, was also, you know, against the religion. And they told me, they didn't tell all girls this, but they told me specifically that birth control was not allowed and that if, you know, if God wanted you to get pregnant, you would. And there was nothing anybody could do about it, including birth control. That was part of the control, right? If you're now pregnant and then also the law looks away as well, not just this religion and not just this group, but actually the law does. So when we returned back to the Bay Area, um, and I'm not sure if your listeners know this, but 43 states legally allow child marriage under 18. And in California, there's actually no age floor uh, with parental consent and judicial review. This is literally what I'm fighting for. This is what I will devote the rest of my life to. I immediately had my daughter, which she changed my life. The moment I had her, I just knew, like, I knew I had to do something. Um, I didn't know what that was yet, but I knew I had to do something. And then I had my son. And during this time, I had started finding, I, I found a way to stand up for myself, and it was through education. Because when I was taken out of the country, I got pregnant. My abuser took me back to California, the Bay Area. And we were legally married in a drive through wedding chapel in Reno, Nevada, where basically all it took was a permission slip from my father. My mom did not have to be mm-hmm. notified. And the fact that I was pregnant actually made it easier for me to get married. In the state of Nevada at that time, it mm-hmm. made it easier for the authorities to look away. So that was actually written into the statute at the time. It has since changed because myself and other survivors have come forward and testified in Nevada and have, have changed the law. It, it wow. doesn't go far enough, but it has changed it to the age of 17, which in my opinion does not go far enough. It should be 18, absolutely no exceptions. But mm-hmm. that aside, I was legally married in Reno, Nevada to mm-hmm. my abuser with the clear evidence of a rape in front of people. And that was the failure of the system that mm-hmm. allowed me to be trafficked Legally, that's what we're fighting against. And it took me seven years because I had to fight not just my abuser, but the group. These ideas uh, that the group had instilled in me from a young age was that I should not have autonomy. I should not speak out for myself. I shouldn't pursue any type of self-indulgence, which included like a career, which included, you know, planning for the future. All of these things that we were told as children, that is the world that's worldly, that we should stay away from, that we should not learn about. We should reject all this education. We should reject ourselves, even our our own basic needs. We were taught from a young age to reject our own basic needs to the point where like, you're not even nourishing yourself properly. You're really Um, giving us a clear picture of how this trafficking and this entrapment took place. It was so systematic. It's basically a control of everything, a control of everything. And to fight that you really, the first step in that was for me to go back to school. And I, um, I challenged the group. 
because uh, my ex-husband told me at the time, well, let's ask the group if you can go. Let's ask the, the leader if you can go. Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked permission. This was the first time asking permission for something. And they told me, no, you should stay home, take care of your, your daughter, your husband. You know, what is he going to do? He's going to be less of a man if you do this. I said to them, to the woman, uh, who is basically the, the wife of the leader, I have to contribute to my family. We're, we're broke. My ex-husband, he had jobs off and on. Uh, we were constantly moving around. I was living in a situation that I was not happy in. Um, I refused and I started going back to school despite what they said. That was the first time where I was just like, there's something wrong here. Okay. I started going back to school and that's kind of how I started to begin my identity and, and challenge the group. And that led to a slow process of what I call like awakening, where I just started questioning things. Yeah. And at first it was the small question of like, why can't I go back to school? And then it was bigger questions of like, why do I have to cover my hair again? Why do I have to do all these things? Why mm-hmm. am I stuck in this relationship that I really don't want to be in? So that led to me after seven years and two children, I don't want to, to do this anymore. I don't want to be with this person. I never did. And, mm-hmm. um, I, after I graduated from culinary school, I got a job and immediately that was when I decided to separate, but it took me three yeah. years to get a divorce. Um, and so that's, a you could see other. the teeny little speck of light through the tunnel. Yes, that's exactly it. Right? Because it looks so dark at those yeah. moments. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah. kudos to you for hanging on with your fingernails. <laughs> Seriously. To do it for my baby. A lot of people lose themselves and never recover. And they may not ever leave. In that moment where you're like, I've got to get out of here, mm-hmm. you persisted. Yeah. And so now you're probably thinking, this is not going to be the life for my children. Yeah, no, I didn't want my daughter growing up with this. Her dad tried to promise her to a friend. So I knew it was going to happen at some point to her if I stayed. Already working on it. Yeah. And also just, I just didn't, there were so many things I didn't agree with and uh, I didn't mm-hmm. want my children to be around it, period. After you do successfully litigate and get out of the marriage, you're still probably struggling at that time with divorcing the concept of the religion. I remember that too. It's very difficult. Yeah. It took years to, it was a slow separation. It's just like leaving a relationship. I was in the group and it took time to acknowledge that the group was, was not the best fit for me. And then within that, There's this slow separation of not only are they, we're not a good fit, but they're abusive. And then realizing that and the PTSD, the nightmares, the constantly looking over your shoulder, the feeling that something bad was going to happen. I was told if you leave, something bad is going to happen. They were all these people that if they left, they were called crazy or they were labeled and you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm now that person. And I was that person for the group. I was that bad, evil, shaitana, you know, fully embodying my my mother before me. Um, but even worse, because mm-hmm. I was now influencing others. 
And yeah. well, we love you for and it. I was like, okay. <laughs> they hate you. We love you. Because the influencing is exactly what we need to stop the cycle. Exactly. That's and exactly why yeah. I applaud what you're doing. The Frankie Files. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I applaud you too for, for bringing it out there to the public. It has to. It ain't easy. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Accomplishing leaving. You can live your life happy now. You're, that's a milestone. But then you turned around and went, mm-hmm. I need to prevent this. What snapped? What happened? Well, what happened is that I started going through my own therapy, which okay. was a process. I lost my mom in 2014. And oh, I'm sorry. she was a huge support in me being able to leave, mm. but also... Um, you know, she was a huge support in my life, period. Um, and losing her was was horrible. Um, and I couldn't keep it together. Like, I just would go through days where I was crying and I couldn't yeah. stop. So I reached out and started getting therapy. And then the therapist was like, well, there's this is not just grief. There's a lot of yeah. other things here. And being able to give vocabulary to what happened to me being able to understand that this was not an isolated event. This doesn't, didn't just happen to me or just the people in this particular group. This is like something that happens to a lot of people and just being able to understand that. And then that helped me understand like how the laws actually work against children in this case. Um, when I was going back to school, I was getting working on my bachelor's. I was doing a research project on it, and um, this was 2016, I want to say. I found out that all 50 states allowed child marriage, and I was, like, literally in shock. I thought maybe this was just something that happened in Nevada, or I didn't think that this was a national issue, and then I was so horrified that this happens all over the place, and I connected with a nonprofit organization. Tahari Justice Center, and I submitted my story, and then immediately they were like, do you want to talk about this? And I started talking publicly with their support and then was connected with two other organizations where mm-hmm. um, they fight to end child marriage, child and forced marriages. Um, and the first point on your website is marriage under 18 years old is legally allowed in 44 states. And right now it's 43. Actually, I have to update that. Um, Recently, Massachusetts also ended uh, marriage under the age of 18. I am shocked. So that is a permission slip required under 18 from your parents? Well, it differs. Each state has uh, different loopholes in their marriage age, which is generally set to the age of 18. In many states, they allow some form of exception, which is generally your parental (sighs) consent, um, either of one or both parents. It can be a judicial review in California, a judicial review, which sounds very, it's not a high Mm. bar. It depends on the county that you get married in. If it's a more rural county, it could just be as simple as like a rubber stamp. And what abusers, they shop around to find the easiest place to make this happen. And so that was the case for my abuser. That was the case for many abusers where they'll be like, oh, um, this County seems like it's a little bit harder to do it. So let's go over here. So, you know, that's what my abuser did. They probably knew that in Nevada, it was much easier. It only required one parent. It was just a written consent. It wasn't, they didn't have to be there in person. 
So that's how the patchwork of these laws create um, a network of abuse. Generally, when you talk about minor marriages, 86% minors marrying adults. Of course, the child is the girl and the predator is double her age. Now, in your case, going with the laws you've just laid out, um, they did a spiritual marriage in the States, mm-hmm. trafficked you to another country yeah. for the rape, and then yeah. raped you, got you pregnant, and then took you to Las Vegas for a legal marriage. Reno, oh, Nevada, which is got just it. basically a short four-hour trip from the Bay Area. So it wasn't like, it wasn't even a full day, you know. Um, this is yep. not what you would call a marriage, right? Mar- right. <laughs> a marriage right. is something where two people come together, mm-hmm. they really want to be with each other and they commit to each other. This is not what you would call a marriage. This was a marriage for everything was in the favor of this man. He was getting his citizenship, getting a teenage bride, the use of my body, full control. Was he going with Sharia law? Well, no, I don't think so. Because in Sharia law, actually, the women do have more rights. This is like a bastard age taking the like religious laws and really bastardizing them into this form of whatever they wanted it to be. It wasn't the actual religion, right? It's kind of like where religion gets turned for the use of its followers. I'm learning so much of what's really going on and how they do it. It's unfathomable to hear how they did this to you. Right. And now um, you're basically saying it's really common. And that's another thing that's making me fall off my chair. The second point is it usually happens to kids who are already suffering from other forms of abuse. A lot of survivors who I've spoken with talk about numerous forms of abuse prior to uh, their child marriage. So yeah. there was either sexual abuse happening in the home or physical abuse or emotional abuse or other forms of abuse or all of the above that were happening to them before the child marriage, which really prevented their own autonomy, their own sense of self. And so the the child marriage was basically just a way of getting rid of this child and all of the um, either the legal repercussions that were going to go along with the sexual abuse or whatever else that they were experiencing in that household. Um, So it's a way of like continuing on the control into another controlling abusive relationship that they now can't escape Mm -hmm. from because legally you haven't reached the age of majority. So -hmm. there are certain things that you can't do. And the parents, and you list this on your website too, the parent, the caretaker wants to control the child's sexuality, sexual orientation or sexual identity. Absolutely. It's a win-win because this marriage, this forced enslaved marriage mm-hmm. also would control you. So the parent, your dad, mm-hmm. could know exactly what you're doing. And the things he believed were that you had to do this for him to have salvation. Right. And it would absolve him of any responsibility. So. It's my husband's responsibility. I ceased being his responsibility and I'm now my husband's responsibility. So now he doesn't really, he doesn't have to have control because my husband has control. That is based in the religion that he was following. But I will say that this happens in non-religious households as well. 
this is a commonplace thing that happens across the United States that is used to cover up abuse, sexual abuse. I mean, the common thread to me is sexual mm-hmm. abuse and controlling yeah. people's identity. Like you referred to sexual identity. If a mm-hmm. person um, identifies differently from the social norm, wherever they grow up, and now they're being told that this is a way to rehabilitate themselves. So if they identify as LGBTQ, mm-hmm. this is a way to rehab them, to make them straight. I want to use a, a twist that was religious. They um, forced me to be with women who were clergy. And yeah. it's called sexual disorientation where you're brought to heal. Right brought under control by doing something you don't want to do. And sex is a very important means of control for religion and slavery. If you have control of that, if you tell someone something so convincing that they will follow your your rules, you know. I asked uh, the trafficker expert, Celia Williamson, in an interview the other day, what's the difference between a pimp and a religious criminal? And she immediately said, the same thing that they do is lots of rules. Yeah. You have to follow. You have mm-hmm. to do this and you have to do this. The mentality is complete control. Right. And that's exactly And you're it. illustrating for us how complete the control is. It was 100% everything. You're so strong. Then you list here on your website, you're raising public awareness about forced child marriage in the United States. You're developing partnerships that support survivors, advocates, and nonprofit groups. And you're creating change through planning, legislation, action, and support. How are you doing the legal activism? Well, the the way that survivors, um, myself and other survivors, participate in the, the, the legal and legislative process is by sharing our testimony in support of bills that basically stop child marriage. Any bill that comes forward that says we are going to make 18 and under folks not be able to get married, that those are the bills I support. And those type of legislative mm-hmm. bills are called 18 no exception bills. And the way that those bills come forward is through legislators, through the legislative process, obviously, um, where a legislator is made aware of this issue and um, they decide to take action and and stop it. And it's extremely difficult because it has to go through state by state uh, because marriage laws are governed by the state. Each state has to basically eliminate marriage under the age of 18 for that state to eliminate child marriage legally. It's a complicated. I have two questions for you now sure. on that particular matter. So you're saying that none of this action is federal. There, there is action at the federal level. Um, for example, uh, when I spoke about immigration, um, there mm-hmm. are some federal laws out there that actually support child marriage. In, for example, you can apply for a spousal visa as a minor. Um, you can also apply for a spousal visa if if a minor person is coming to the U.S. So it goes both ways. So those people who are being promised to wed, they're set right. up in a trafficking manner so that the other person can get citizenship. 
We don't know all the scenarios because of that, but we do know that because it's legally allowed, of course, people are going to take advantage of it, including abusers. That's the issue is it's not being excluded uh, as a possibility. And I think that is really important to understand is that we're we're not saying that people can't get married. (laughs) We're just saying that under the age of 18, you don't share the same rights as an adult does, meaning you can't hire an attorney if you want to leave your marriage and Mm -hmm. file for divorce. You can't enter into a lease. And a lot of states, you can't even go to a domestic violence shelter. And so your rights as an adult are limited if you're a minor, obviously. Even if you're an emancipated minor, you're not going to find a lawyer who's going to want to take your case as minor. Think about the system, the way it's set up. It's not set up for minors to navigate it. Uh, Our family law system is not set up for a minor girl who, who is now in custody of two children to be able to navigate that process. And you're fighting a whole system. It feels like you're fighting the whole world because here you are, a young mother. Um, you're now charged with this responsibility of raising children. Um, but you don't have the means to do it. You've been taken out of school. You're, even the judge is like against you. So it's, it's the whole system <laughs> that has to change. This is exactly why I'm glad to speak to you today. So, Sara, let's talk about your message that you want to get out. What can people do, like me, who want to help you in this activism? What can we do? How do we keep in touch with you? What do we do? Um, Well, you can definitely find me on my blog. There's a handful of organizations that are out there that are trying to change these, um, these laws. If you go to my website, you can connect with me and I will be happy to connect you folks who are working to stop marriage under the age of 18. I would say if you want to get involved, find out what the laws are in your state. If child marriage is legal in your state and it's legal in 43 states, so chances are very high that it's probably legal where you live. And if it is legal where you live, reach out to your legislators, get them educated on this issue. Educate yourself about the issue and educate others because that's how we spread awareness that this is happening. And it is happening. The reason it's been able to happen for so long is because people think that it's not an issue or they think that it's not happening here in the United States or that we're such a progressive nation. We would never allow that. When the, when the simple fact of the matter is that pedophilia has been going on in this country since its inception. And let's just understand that that is built into our laws. And when you understand that, you're going to understand why these laws exist. The trafficking of children has been going on for a very long time. These laws have been written into our state laws because of how our nation was built and the fact that we have common law that was brought over from, from England. So once you really start kind of unraveling that, I think it's easier to understand why this happens. And as uh, someone who lived through this very experience, being arranged into a marriage that you weren't prepared for or told about at 15, before you even really know what sex is, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to check about the laws, and then I'm going to tell them your story and send them to your website because that way they can get in touch with you. What stands out for me is that the family separation could be just like forever. For me, um, 
you know, I was able mm-hmm. to obviously reconnect with my mom, but there are a lot of things that I wish I had talked to her about before, before she passed. But that being said, I feel like at least we were able to have that open communication versus mm-hmm. like with my dad, I just, that will ever happen. I don't think he'll ever get to a place where we yeah. can actually even have that conversation. Um, and still you're the bigger person, even though he tortured and enslaved you with a marriage you didn't sign up for. You're ready. You have the olive branch out. It's like, don't wait. Yeah. I, I think I was that person for a long time. And now I'm just like, no, I don't. This person is really toxic and actually I need to stay away from them. And that yes. unraveling of like identifying with your abusers is really that was really a challenge for me and, and realizing that it wasn't my fault um, and that mm-hmm. a lot of what I was hearing in my head was my abusers talking to me. Yes. The indoctrination is there to cover up all their wonderful behavior. Right. Explaining it away to ourselves because we've been told what to say to ourselves. Well, they did it because of this. They did it because they right. believed this. They did it. It's horrible. It goes on forever. It's like an echo chamber. And that's why, like you, I'm at that healing point of saying, you know, God is a bit of a lie, too. I have to look at if you could use something like that, God said, you have to have sex with me. Maybe God's a figment of human imagination that is handy to get stuff done. You've given us homework. You've told us how it happened. And now we are smarter. We can actually help children from being married at a young age. Sara, congratulations on your thriving. You're strong and you're speaking for those who you want to prevent this happening to. Thank you so much. Um, It's just so important that more awareness gets spread about this issue just because when it's in the dark, nobody knows it's happening. And I really appreciate your voice. And had I not heard it, I wouldn't have been connected to you. So that's why voices are so important. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for being my guest here today, Sarah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for bearing your soul to us today. I'll be launching the use of a new hashtag, Occupy Cults. Occupy Cults certainly speaks for itself. It's time that we get the word out about the damage these cults do financially, emotionally, psychologically, sexually, generationally. And that's part of what prompted me to begin speaking out. The hashtag Occupy Cults should be placed on anything you want the awareness raised on. Check out Occupy Cults, the hashtag. If you're feeling down and no one's there to actually talk to, there is someone to talk to. Call the suicide prevention hotline anytime. This will pass. Please know that many of us have survived these thoughts. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 anytime, day or night. There's a friendly person there that can remind you to value the life you have and that this too shall pass. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255 or search online National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com.